In Britain, they were known as the Parachute Regiment, but their German enemies christened them the Red Devils. Circus performers, solicitors, grave diggers, family men. They were ordinary people who became wartime heroes. And today, thanks to a listener suggestion by one of our warfare regulars, Andrew Smith, we hear their story. Andrew's dad served in the 12th Battalion of the Parachute Regiment during the Second World War. And off the back of his own search for his family history, Andrew suggested that we dedicate an episode to the daring missions and remarkable successes of the Paris during the Second World War. It's also the 80th anniversary of the Paris' first campaign, Operation Torch, in North Africa. So to cover all of this on the Warfare podcast, we've had to pull out the big guns. Mark Urban is the diplomatic editor of the BBC's Newsnight programme and was formerly defence correspondent for The Independent. He also served in the British Army. He was in the Tank Regiment and the Territorial Army, and he's covered most major wars around the world for the past 25 years. He's also author of a new book, Red Devils, The Trailblazers of the Parachute Regiment in World War II, and Authorised History. So, settle down. You're in for a treat. A historical journey that takes us from North Africa to D-Day, Arnhem to Italy. Enjoy. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Great. How are you in Alabama? Good, thanks. The first storms of the season are coming in, so I'm going to be drenched when I leave the Air Force Base here. But apart from that, I think I'm going to be okay. And it is great to have you on the podcast. That will get me through any storm. I've long admired your work as diplomatic editor over at Newsnight. And of course, you were the former defense correspondent over for The Independent. And your books like Task Force Black on the Iraq War have long been read by my students. A personal favourite of mine is Big Boy's Rules, which is part of our terrorism and counterterrorism course because you explore the covert actions against the IRA. And I mention all of this because, you know, you're no stranger to international conflict and international security. But your new book, Red Devils, is an authorised history of the Parachute Regiment from its very start 80 years ago. So this is my very long-winded way of asking... What made you focus on the Parachute Regiment? I've always found military organisations and how they work and what marks the defining characteristics of a successful one versus one that runs away in a hallooing rabble, or indeed how a unit that is one day the first of those things can, in a fairly short space of time, become the second, a, a mob of disconnected individuals all trying to save themselves. So for me, that's always been a really important part of military history. It's also fair to say, I think, that I'm interested in what you might call military startups. You know, the idea that organizations that are intrinsically, in many ways, quite conservative and have perhaps in some countries a tendency to fight the last war have to think ahead. And innovators, amid those headwinds, sometimes have to win the arguments and get moving with new types of warfare and new types of weapon or tactic or whatever. And that's really something that can be seen in a few of the books I've done. I wrote the book Rifles about the 95th Rifle Regiment in the uh, Peninsula Wars, 1809 to 1815, to Waterloo, in fact. And obviously, in that case, it was a new weapon, a, a rifle, and new tactics that were the big innovation. Then I wrote The Tank Wars, which is about the Royal Tank Regiment, but in World War II, rather than World War I, when they first deployed tanks on the field of battle. But... I think there was still a sense that they were having to win arguments for resources and people and all the rest of it when the Second World War started and to prove themselves. And with Red Devils, 
I think we've got a similar kind of story in a way, and that's what attracts me to it. Unlike the tank, where the British had made confident and important steps during the First World War and then lost their mojo a bit, with airborne warfare, the British really were behind the curve. And the three nations that had really taken it seriously in the interwar years were Germany, the Soviet Union, and to some extent, Italy. So when the war started, the Germans were able in Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Greece, to use airborne operations to great effect to seize a key bridge as they did in Greece or to take a fortress that dominated a key avenue of advance as they did in Belgium. Yes, Aben Amal in Belgium. They took that with glider squadrons, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Well, quite a small number of people, in fact, just several dozen soldiers went down onto this fortress in Belgium that was considered impregnable and managed to sort of blow their way in with shaped charges and disable the whole thing. So the Germans had made this very confident start with airborne warfare. And of course, the British, who were reeling in that early period of the war, found themselves in 1940 in the summer, having extracted the expeditionary force from France lost most of its kit, then being on the back foot strategically, expecting the possibility of invasion. And Churchill wanted that summer to create a new airborne capability to get into that game. Now, you might say, well, why? Since the possibility of bold advances of the kind we'd seen the Germans do through the Low Countries or France was clearly not possible at that stage of the war for Britain. Britain was expecting invasion and the Battle of Britain and everything else. But I think Churchill's theory was, look, with parachute troops, we can surprise them and mount raids. And he married it up with his founding at about the same time, a few weeks apart of the Special Operations Executive, to train members of resistance groups from the occupied countries to go back and, as he put it, set Europe ablaze. So in the initial creation of this, the idea was that, look, this would be a way at relatively low cost with a few very brave, intrepid soldiers of keeping the enemy in some way unbalanced or keeping us in the business of warfare on the continent by mounting raids, by sea perhaps, by parachute, by a combination of those things, and forcing the Germans to tie down forces all along uh, the coast from Norway through uh, Denmark, the Low Countries, France, etc., etc., because we might land anywhere. Well, that was the idea, and it was on that basis that Britain really got into that business. But I think pretty quickly, they started to think beyond that. They started to think, well, okay, strategically, we may be on the back foot at the moment, but we all know that in order to win this war, we're going to have to land on the continent and quite possibly go to Germany and defeat Germany in their own land. And well, at that point, we might need quite a large airborne capability like the one Germany has or the Soviet Union has. We might need whole divisions, 10,000 plus soldiers to take bridges or gain us a strategic advance, steal a march. And so they started thinking about that as well. And so they were thinking about very different things, the sort of raiding idea, which is these days we might think more about special forces or uh, small numbers of very highly trained troops and the big strategic operation. And of course, as the war went on, the tables were turned and the possibility of using paratroopers in much larger numbers became real. And that's all part of the story of the book is how uh, the startup, if you like, having had initially one business model, had to adapt it rather radically to a completely different scale of operation. 
I can understand why it was beguiling for Churchill. I mean, you look at Hitler's victories at Aben Amal. They even recreated it on film so that they could promote it across the Third Reich because they took one of the most heavily defended forts on earth. I've been inside the fort at Aben Amal. I've been to the point where they landed on the roof. No one thought it was possible to break into this fortress. It was truly impenetrable. So I completely get why Churchill wanted this. But you say you are kind of a fan of obsessives, of iconoclasts, of these progressive thinkers who try and get around established forms of defense and offense during war. So who on earth did Churchill put in charge to try and put this whole thing together? Who did he put in charge to get men that would jump out of planes? Well, initially, they had a couple of senior officers, a guy called Eric Down, and then a guy, Richard Gale, another rather smart, tactically innovative commander. But what really happened was they realised, and the Chief of the General Staff, Alan Brooke, and also Lord Mountbatten, the Head of Joint Operations, realised that what they needed was someone who was a bit more ambassadorial than those fighting soldiers, and somebody who could really bring things together in the corridors of power as well as on the battlefield. And they settled on General Browning, General Boy Browning was his nickname, Frederick Browning, as the person who they thought was best able to do that. And in many ways, I think it was a very smart choice because Browning was an officer in the Grenadier Guards. He'd got the Distinguished Service Order as a mere lieutenant in the First World War, you know, a very junior officer to be getting an award for higher command like that. He'd been to Eton. He'd been friends with several ministers. He knew loads of people in the army. He'd married a famous novelist, Daphne du Maurier. He had a whole network of people in the arts, therefore, and society more widely who knew him. He was very charming, highly educated, and very driven. And he was the person who had to make that larger vision, the airborne division, i.e. a formation of three brigades with all the supporting troops, let's say, for the sake of argument, 10,000 troops, Two of them would land by parachute. One brigade would be landed by glider, along with a lot of the heavy equipment. Now, he was the person chosen in the autumn of 1941 to make that real. And so he was designated commander of the Airborne Division. And he was the guy who really took the whole thing on to a much higher level in terms of the numbers, the scale of training and all the rest of it. But going back to the qualities you need, I mean, he... What he found was that with regards to people behind desks in khaki, things worked pretty well because he had all those connections. He had great connections with Buckingham Palace as well. But anyone in light blue was a bit more of a problem. And as far as the Air Force was concerned and Bomber Command was concerned, the attempt to create at that stage of the war an airborne division was a huge distraction of effort. And they basically tried to just slow pedal the whole thing. And they did. I mean, for the best part of a year and a half, really dragged their heels, devoted as few aircraft as possible to the task of training and conducting exercises with these new paratrooper units. And they just didn't want to do it. You see, the issue there was, James, that at the time, the prime method for delivering paratroopers was bombers. And of course, the the argument of Bomber Command was, no, no, we need to burn the black heart of Nazi Germany, as Bomber Harris would have put it. And we don't want to be messing about, you know, when they started looking at the scale of effort, you'd need to drop a whole division. You know, Bomber Harris soon worked out that it would involve taking Bomber Command entirely offline for six weeks, possibly losing many of his aircraft and all the rest of it. So they really didn't want to do it. 
And if one reads about a couple of the exercises that Churchill went to early in 1941 and then early the following year, he was furious because the level of effort being given by the RAF, which was about a dozen Whiteley bombers and a handful of aircraft to tow gliders, was not much increased over the year between attending these two exercises, whereas the number of trained paratroopers had gone from being a few hundred to a few thousand. So there was just enough resource to train the new soldiers to, to operate in this way, but not really enough to exercise and to practice dropping whole battalions, whole brigades or whatever, until significantly later on in the war. So that was the issue. That was the tension that, if you like, the force that Browning had to push against. I mean, it's pretty understandable. In times of war, you're mobilising to take on this massive great power threat and you want to divert your resources, that vital money, to the key points that you think are most important to winning that war. And so taking a risk on a new branch of the military is you know, not something that you really want to dabble with. And I just wonder, around that period, from kind of like 1941, if some of the failures of paratroopers for Hitler in Crete really played into the hands of those who didn't want the parachute regiment to go forwards. While I was in Crete, I was hearing stories about how the Allies were just taking pot shots at these thousands of paratroopers coming down out of the sky, and so many of them were just killed before they hit the ground, to the point where Hitler saw it as such a major failure, even though they did eventually take Crete and cause that massive evacuation of Allied forces back over to North Africa. He lost so many troops, he said, we will never do an airborne operation in this size ever again. Was this not something that the British, the Allies saw as perhaps an equally important lesson to take from that failure? Look, it's a fascinating point you make. You might argue that it should have been or that it was a gift to the bomber lobby or whoever else, but I'm not sure. I mean, thinking back to the various documents and the arguments, I'm not sure it was exploited that much by the RAF in their arguments against large-scale airborne operations. The RAF accepted broadly that by the time the war had progressed to the point that the UK was on the strategic offensive or the tide had turned, that we would need large-scale airborne operations, for example, to help with landing in France, D-Day as it became, that they did understand that, or indeed Italy. They did understand that and they did accept that basic strategic rationale. They did also accept the basic rationale that if you could drop people anywhere along this, whatever it was, the hugely long coastline of occupied Europe, that could pin down a lot of Axis troops. So they did broadly accept those arguments. And I think the thing that by the time Crete happened, that maybe, if you like, lubricated the friction away was a growing sense but it wasn't a zero-sum game in terms of the bomber force. You know, what you find that by the summer of 1942, the Lancaster was coming on stream in larger numbers. So the Wellington and the Whitby and other bombers that had been used in some of the early paratroop drops were less vital to the front line of bomber command. At the same time, it became obvious when I think it was around 40 to 45, the DC-3s, Dakotas belonging to the U.S., Army Air Force landed in England as part of the preparations for operations they were going to do in North Africa with an American paratroop battalion. And then the British started borrowing those aircraft for training. And the British had Dakotas, as they called them, on order. That somehow this friction about using the same aircraft was going to be dissipated because Dakotas would be used for the big airborne operations 
and it wouldn't be a drain on the bomber force. So I think for all those reasons, the what would have been a very natural tendency, as you say, for the skeptics to say, come on, we've learned from Crete that this just isn't worth it at that scale. It would have been a very natural thing. And the fun, one of the funny things is uh, when you read the autobiography of Johnny Frost and indeed uh, what he was saying at the time, now he was the commanding officer of the second parachute battalion for much of the war. And he's one of the central characters in my book. And Frost, because he'd been on this small raid in France, early 1942, the Bruneval raid, to take components from a German radar station and take them back to Britain, he very much believed in the sort of small is beautiful model. And he thought, well, if you mount operations at a small scale, you can do loads of them all over the place and just keep the enemy constantly unbalanced. And that was his idea, rather than saving everything up for huge, you know, market garden-sized operations. And terrible irony that Frost himself ended up on that one and ended up being taken on that operation. So there were definitely people within the airborne establishment who thought, look, let's just do this sort of sensible level. Perhaps they did digest the lessons of Crete and thought, well, when you play big, you can lose big. But I think the impetus was there for many reasons in the high command not just the influence of people like Boy Browning, but a desire to see airborne warfare realised at a really high level that just meant ploughing on with it. And, you know, if we think about what happened when the Allies in, in the summer of 1943 invaded Sicily, I mean, good Lord, there were huge problems with that operation uh, caused in part by the command and control confusion. And when the 82nd Airborne Division went in to land troops on the beaches in the southwest uh, of Sicily, they came under fire from the US Navy fleet lying off offshore that thought they were German bombers. Terrible consequences, 300 or so paratroopers and aircrew killed when their planes were shot down by their own side. And then on the other side of Sicily, when the Brits attempted something similar with gliders, tremendous difficulties dozens of gliders ditching in the sea, only 12 of those launched landing anywhere near their targets. So yes, I mean, you had Crete, and then you had this terrible series of events in Sicily, which you would have thought would have shaken the faith. I think the view of the airborne establishment, or call them what you will, uh, apostles of airborne warfare was, yeah, this is a dangerous business. And to lose 20, even 30% of an airborne force in an operation has to be a price that we're willing to pay. So it was tough, tough for those required to do these operations, for sure. The losses at Sicily were just incredible. I mean, it really irks me when people say that those involved in the Italy campaign were D-Day dodgers because, you know, there truly was no easy war and Italy was certainly not a theatre that was in any way a cakewalk. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast 
by History Hit. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Take us back to some of these early missions. I think we're approaching the 80th anniversary of the first major mission of the Parachute Regiment, the Red Devils, as they were named by the Germans themselves. Was it Operation Torch in the November of 42? How successful was that? Well, the whole concept of Operation Torch, I mean, it was to bring the, at the political and strategic level, it was to bring the US into the war in a big way in terms of a big invasion force. And because the US was the dominant player, General Eisenhower was appointed to command it. And uh, I guess the thinking was, and it, it was pretty smart thinking, I think, in terms of ground strategy, that with the Axis forces, Italian and Africa Corps forces in North Africa facing east towards the British and Empire troops that were advancing after the Battle of El Alamein towards the bases of the Axis force in Libya and Tunisia, why not land a load of people behind them and completely unbalance? the Axis forces in North Africa. And that was the origin of the torch landings, which, as you say, went ahead late in 1942 with landings in Algeria, I think some in Morocco too. So quite a way, hundreds of kilometres to the west of where the Germans and Italians were defending Tunis as their sort of main logistic and support base. So the idea was, look, if we can rush forward towards Tunisia, maybe even Tunis itself, we can get in by the back door while most of the Africa Corps and the Italian army is facing the wrong way. So that was the broad concept. And of course, they thought, well, in that sort of fast moving operation that we'd like to do and take advantage of surprise, there's a role for paratroopers. Can we get them ahead to seize a key airfield or to seize a key pass through the hill country on the border of Tunisia and Algeria? And that's what they tried to do. And the first few operations that the first parachute brigade did, I guess you can say they're the first proper airborne operations, British ones of the war, because Bruneval was just a company strength thing, 120 or so people jumping out of planes into France on a very short-lived mission. The missions that were carried out during Operation Torch involved battalion-sized drops, uh, first on an airfield at a place called Bern, which was a key place both in terms of having the airfield close to the border with Tunisia, a port nearby. And in fact, it was such an obvious strategic target that a German airborne force was mobilized to seize it as well. And apparently in their Junkers 52s, as they were flying towards Bone, they saw the British airborne operation go in and decided to scrub their own. They turned around in midair and went back because they realized that the British airborne operation had beaten them to it. That was the third battalion of the parachute regiment, which was commanded at the time by another person who is central to our narrative, a man with the extraordinary name of Geoffrey Pine Coffin. 
he was to prove one of the most successful early commanders of paratroopers. And they then dropped another parachute battalion, the first, at a place called Mejdels al-Bab, and that was designed to get a passage through the hill country. Now, then they overreached themselves. They thought, wow, we can get towards Tunis really fast here. And they planned a drop on what they thought were Axis airfields just to the southwest of Tunis at a place called Udna. And that job was given to the 2nd Battalion under this legendary character, Johnny Frost. And they dropped in, and that was all a disaster. So having had a couple of operations that went pretty well, the third one was a disaster because, or the fourth, I should say, because an American battalion was also dropped in Algeria. But the 2nd Battalion's operation was a disaster, and they dropped too far forward, and the ground force that was meant to link up with them, which initially they, they met up with leading elements of it, but the main force was stopped well south of where they were. And then as the Germans moved to surround them, Johnny Frost and his people thought, ah, okay, well, we're 80 kilometers from friendly lines. How the hell are we going to get back? And began a series of sort of desperate force marches and rearguard actions in which most of the troops who'd landed were either captured or killed. So it was a pretty dreadful operation. But anyway, I suppose you could argue if you followed the kind of logic and, you know, had the kind of toughness of some of the commanders at that time that it was a risk worth taking, it hadn't worked out. It was very bad for the people involved in the operation, but it had been worth a try. And having failed with that last attempt to speed torch landing force towards Tunis, everything then slowed down and they got involved in a much more attritional fight in the hill country on the Tunisian border with Algeria. And the parachute brigade was committed to that and had a lot of very tough and difficult fights. They lost a lot of people. A big element of the original volunteer cadre of the parachute battalions was lost in those battles. But you can say, and people did at the time, it's where they made their name as highly effective fighting soldiers. Who were these highly effective fighting soldiers? I've always wondered who the hell signs up to be a volunteer in the parachute regiment. Is there a kind of person when you were doing your research that you found, you know, were they a similar type of people? Did they have a similar background? Or were they just a a complete eclectic mix, a, a strange ragtag bunch that were pulled together to jump out of planes? Well, we talk about diversity these days, and that will bring to mind some very specific ideas if we use that in the modern context. But gosh, in the kind of 1940 and 41 context, they were an amazingly diverse bunch. So you had people with all kinds of motivations, the guys who just thirsted for action, soldiers who had been on the northwest frontier of India, soldiers who'd volunteered to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War, one or two from the French Foreign Legion adventurers, ardent anti-fascists. I mean, you had a distinctive cohort in the early ranks of the parachute regiment who were communists. You had quite a lot of Jews serving in the parachute regiment in the early days. And in fact, the 22nd Independent Parachute Company, which was the Pathfinder Company at Arnhem, I think it was something like 25% of it were German Jewish volunteers for parachute operations who were such ardent anti-fascists that they were prepared to take that incredible risk of being pathfinders, of being the first guys to land. And of course, they had the native German and Austrian language skills that they could interrogate prisoners and call out to them, subterfuge, you know, convince German soldiers that they were also German. And so 
it was an amazingly diverse bunch, you know, Irish, Catholics, Welsh, Methodists, every type of religion, every type of political belief, quite a lot of communists. There was a guy, also one of the central characters who I follow his story through the book, whose father was a trade union organiser. He was very left wing. He was a sergeant, but he couldn't stand officers. He was constantly having rows with officers because he didn't accept their right to sort of lord it over the working man, as it were. And then you had people on the reactionary right. I mean, it really was quite extraordinary. And then if you look at the occupations of these people in the kind of Nissen huts at Hardwick Hall, where they did the initial weeding out of volunteers, there's a fantastic description by another one of the central characters who we follow, a Lance Corporal who volunteers. He walks in the Nissen hut and there's a pair of boots hanging there. And there's a circus strong jaw act man who's hanging from the rafters by a rope, just trying to keep his strength and his jaws going or whatever. And this soldier who volunteered, the Lance Corporal, Arthur Maybury, he has this fantastic list of the professions of the people who were there with him. It literally goes from sort of burglars to circus acts, to solicitors, to policemen, uh, grave digger, docker. I mean, all of these extraordinary diverse people. And I think what unified them, particularly in the early wave of volunteering, was a hunger for action and a belief that, you know, just marching up and down the parade ground in Catterick or Northern Ireland or whatever was not in any material way contributing to the war effort. They wanted to get stuck in. They want to get out there and fight the Nazis. And, you know, that bravery, that passion has to be respected. But I can only imagine, you know, if you're an officer trying to deal with that, the, the volatility between that group must have been, well, almost unimaginable. Did it lead to any more disturbing incidences? I know in your book, you follow six heroes, and not to give too much away, but two don't make it back, and, and one would leave in disgrace. What, what is that story about the disgrace within the regiment? Well, what they lived in fear of early on was RTU, return to unit. And this is a phrase that's lived on, for example, in the modern special forces, where they're just taking volunteers from other units who go forward to selection. And if they don't make it, or if they fall foul of the uh, SAS or the SBS or whatever, they get returned to unit. And this phrase became current in the war. And among the early volunteers to the parachute regiment, yes, indeed, it's what they feared they might have been in the Royal Irish Rifles or, you know, the West Kent Regiment or whatever, but they would be sent back. And I think for those who had to command them, they were constantly riding the tiger, as it were, of the kind of raucous enthusiasm. And I think that to an extent also the tendency to violence of a lot of these guys who'd volunteered with the possibility that, yeah, OK, that's great when you get them into action. But in terms of life in a garrison town of Salisbury or, you know, in the bars of North Africa when these guys were let loose, on a 48-hour pass, it could make for big problems. And as you say, there's one of the characters in the book, and I won't go into too much detail, so not to do a spoiler, but yeah, it's effectively his nature is so angry, particularly when he's got a few drinks in him, that having survived and done incredibly well in many of the parachute regiment's early fights, he does end up in a situation where he basically assaults an officer and gets returned to unit and then leaves our story, as it were, at that point. So yes, this happened. Uh, and I think people like Johnny Frost, who was the son of an Indian army officer, I mean, he writes in his memoirs that the Arab levies that he served with in Iraq in, in 1940-41 were like the finest 
he's quite careful in the words he chooses. He doesn't say the best soldiers I ever worked with, but he says, I think he says among the best. But I mean, you get the definite impression from Johnny Frost that the kind of established order of soldiers like that and, and of the Indian Army is something he understands very well, whereas the kind of raucous enthusiasm and the sort of vocal nature of dissent in the National Service Army that he has real difficulties dealing with. I managed to unearth all sorts of stuff when looking at the letters and early journals, and some guys wrote memoirs as well that were intended just for their family, either written in longhand or typescript, and the Imperial War Museum archive has some of those. And there's some fantastic material in the uh, account of one of these guys who's a national serviceman, but because he's smart and conscientious, they make him a sergeant, and he's only just in his 20s. And he talks about the problems of maintaining discipline among these soldiers. And he has a particular guy who he calls the platoon shop steward, who is constantly giving him trouble by refusing to accept orders. And when they get called up, they get caught by General Browning, standing lazily around waiting for an aircraft on Netheraven Airfield. And he stops his car and says, why didn't you salute me? And then this huge problem blows up with this young sergeant, because there's no officer there, and his platoon. And he basically orders them to do an hour and a half saluting practice every morning and all the rest of it. And the sergeant describes the riotous scenes in the Nissen hut where he basically has to persuade these raucous paratroopers that they've got to do this, what they would regard as parade ground bull, because they didn't smartly enough salute the general as he was passing. And that's the kind of tension that was there all the time, I think, in the early days. I mean, clearly, once you're in action, in combat, there are different kinds of tensions. But these ones, these disciplinary tensions and these questions about how you manage soldiers like that were constantly there. When, they, when the 2nd Battalion did their first large-scale drop from the American Dakota aircraft not long before they left for North Africa, that same soldier who we find raucously reacting to General Browning there, his parachute ripped as he was coming down because it was an American parachute that, in the view of the British soldiers, had not been made as well. And he runs over to their brigadier who's watching the drop, and a number of soldiers died, I think five or six in this exercise. And this paratrooper, Private Goldsmith, starts shouting at the brigadier about the quality of the parachutes, the inferior quality and how it's all been done wrong. And this young sergeant who's watching it all happen thinks, oh my God, if we were in trouble before, we're going to be in even more trouble now. But the brigadier just lets it slide and they manage to get away with it and they don't get any further punishment. But look, now I'm painting a picture here of the atmosphere that existed and the tensions that were there. You know, they were amazing soldiers, but I would imagine um, quite hard to lead. I wonder if you had to allow that kind of level of freedom of thought as well, instead of just breaking them down completely and rebuilding them as soldiers. You know, if you are putting these troops into really difficult situations where they have to think on their feet, then you want them to be able to think quickly and to be able to think for themselves, perhaps without an officer nearby. So maybe there was that room given deliberately. But either way, Mark, thank you so much for giving us this insight into the history of the Red Devils, the Parachute Regiment. And I can safely say that our listeners should go out there and buy the book because there's so much more in there. Tell us, Mark, where can we buy the book and when is it out? Well, the publication date is the 27th of October and you can get it in all the normal places that you would go for your books. Uh, clearly, there are online platforms. There's an audio book as well coming out on the same day, 
read by me with some atrocious accents in there as occasionally. So yeah, it's available at all the normal places you would go to for your books. Great stuff. Thanks, Mark. I look forward to hearing those accents and uh, <laughs> we'll put a link to the book in our show notes. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.